0: Good day, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Live with Doug. We are thinking through God's word together. Glad that you are here. Good morning, Alan, and uh, the rest of you who are joining us. So as we've been studying the church, and if you've been along with us, we have dug into the traditional model and what the Bible says the church is to do and to be, and it's become pretty clear that uh, the way we typically do things is not what we see in scripture in many ways. And for me, it's been uh, personal and humbling uh, in several respects. I spent 25 years of my life uh, in the traditional model as a as a pastor, and here is one of the things more more recently that has uh, got my attention, or uh, that's not the way to say it. That has humbled me. Uh, it's Realizing I have preached a lot of sermons, a lot of them. I mean, for many years, I probably preached at least 45 of the 52 Sundays. And well, anyway, a lot. And now what I'm learning as we gather in a home fellowship, the impact that I'm able to have with these folks in that setting is transcendently superior to the impact I had preaching. I loved preaching. I'm one of those weird guys that uh, if it's true if i if I'm dealing with truth and something I'm passionate about, uh, I'm not afraid of public speaking. i I enjoy it. It's like I have this opportunity. I have a captive audience. <laughs> <laughs> they can't go anywhere, and and I get to instruct them for you know forty five minutes. One time I preached for I forget if it was sixty three minutes or whatever, and uh, everyone said keep going. It was great. It wasn't uh, you know I can't believe you went so long. Like keep going. We should do this every Sunday. Um, I enjoyed it. I worked on my craft. I I strove to be as as good as I could be at, at this. And I spent all week studying, all week preparing, praying for it, soaking myself, immersing myself in the text, and then boom! In one, you know, one lecture, I lay it all out there, and I wonder why people aren't transformed. Why are? Why is this church not just thriving with Christian maturity? And what I've had to realize now having been away from that for over a year and and stepping back and looking at what the scripture says versus all that, I realized that's just not where we learn the most in that kind of setting. I learned a ton. I learned so much in those 25 years, but the people listening to me did not learn but a small fraction of what I wanted them to. And yet what I see now is, when I'm teaching and we're having dialogue and interaction, I can hear from the people what they are learning and not learning, what they are believing that is different from what I'm trying to teach. We, we go back and forth and others get to speak into it. And we learn from each other. It's not just all from me like a sermon is. And I put all that together and I think, well, this is why the scripture, this is why Jesus set his church up the way he did, the body, dialogue, interaction, and that's another big flaw in our current traditional model of church. Let me show you uh, some things that I think are interesting in First Timothy based on this. Uh, I see lots of folks come in. Good morning, Keith and and Kyle. Uh, I think, uh, I don't remember seeing your name before. Are you new around here? So welcome. Good morning, Dale and Mike and, and Tammy. Good morning. You said your first time here. Glad to have you. So uh, so glad to see new faces and hear from new folks. So here's what First uh, Timothy 6.3 says. This is Paul writing to Timothy. If anyone advocates a, a, a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, suppose that godliness is a means of gain now i look at that that those three verses and i think whoa how much of our view of church is he describing here so first of all paul says to timothy if anyone advocates a different doctrine different from what he's been saying here in first timothy If he does, then he's not agreeing with sound words, the words that conform with the doctrine that conforms to godliness. I've been pointing this out the last few days. Paul was primarily concerned with godliness and sound doctrine is that which conforms to godliness. We have an unholy church by and large And that's a generalization, I get it, but am I wrong? We have an unholy church because we have replaced doctrine conforming to godliness with systematic theology. And the pushback on that is we can't just let people believe whatever they want to about God. We have to teach them about God. Of course you do. Of course we have to teach them the truth as revealed in the scripture about God. But the truth as revealed in scripture, the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, not the writings of men, not our systematic theology and our commentaries and all that. And as we teach them what the Lord Jesus Christ taught us about God, it should promote godliness. And going beyond that leads to conceit and ignorance. He understands nothing. But this morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words—I have had, I don't know how many disputes about words—and been involved in controversies from pastors and theologians who don't really want to talk about Godliness. I had a, I had a very, uh, very good friend, uh, a man who showed a great deal of of love and concern for my family for years. And I was preaching the Romans. And as long as I was in the first 11 chapters dealing with quote unquote, doctrinal things, and he was just my biggest fan. Then I got to chapter 12. And there Paul, of course, says, you know, present your bodies as living sacrifices like your whole being, your whole life, everything is to be presented to God. That is the the new covenant sacrifice that we bring to the Lord as our whole body. Don't be conformed to the world. And and I went through the instructions in chapters 12 and 13 and 14, very, very carefully, very slowly, and really try to apply the commands there to devote yourself to one another, devote yourself to prayer, love one another, give preference to one another to honor hate evil, love good, all those kind of things. And uh, they ended up leaving the church because I had gotten too topical and too concerned with um, uh, practical things and and left the, the truth of God. I was shocked by that. But he he was happy as long as we were talking about the deep things of theology But when you start actually getting into conforming to godliness, you didn't want to hear it. How much of our interaction as, as pastors and elders and Christians is wrapped up in trying to stir up controversies, dispute about words, throw words around, and we do this, we grab a verse here and there and just throw it out at each other because we love to debate theology. Rather than conforming to godliness. Paul has some pretty strong words here. They can they produce constant friction, evil suspicions, and so on. And they suppose that Godliness is a means of gain. You get paid a lot of money, in some cases, to uh, to stir up these controversies. I know I'm being very general here, and I don't want to suggest that your pastors and elders are are doing this. I just I know the temptation, and I have run in those circles where this, the warning, what Paul's warning of, seems closer to what goes on than a, a pursuit of godliness so what are these things this doctrine that paul is is telling timothy to make sure that you advocate and don't advocate a different one and don't let others advocate a different one it's all things he have been talking about very practical I, I know i keep saying it but i <laughs> repetition is is a pedagogical tool here to help us ingrain pray men i want men to pray together lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension women don't be persuaded by the feminism of the day. Be a good wife and mother. Uh, love your husband. Love your children. Submit to the authority of the teaching of those men over you. Make sure that our elders are qualified. Our deacons are qualified. All the things we've been talking about. And, and w- look at what he said most recently here that I didn't get to yet. But chapter 6, verse 1 says, All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. You see how practical that is? If you're a slave, honor your master. This is not some abstract theory of the attributes of God. He's saying you will bring reproach on the name of God if you don't honor your master. Now, that's a hard saying because if you think he's talking about employees, employers, you don't really understand first century slavery. If you are an employee, you have a contractual agreement with your employer. You do this work. He pays you this much. And if you don't want to work there anymore, you leave. And if you signed a contract that says you'll be penalized for leaving, great. You can do that and you pay your money and you leave and you go find another job. You are not a slave to your employer. No, no, these people didn't have the freedom to just walk away. So under that kind of slavery, when your master controlled you, and you did not have the freedom to simply leave this master and go find another one, Paul says godliness and the kind of doctrine that the Lord Jesus teaches is one that says you honor your master even if he is cruel to you. That's a different kind of teaching than we typically get in our sermons in churches today, is it not? He goes on, godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment, for you brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God. Talking to Timothy, flee. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Again, character, character. Godliness is Paul's main concern here for Timothy and what he's supposed to teach others. Flee from the love of money and run to righteousness. Godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. Fight the good fight. Take a hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in front of many witnesses. How does he fight the good fight? He keeps preaching the gospel and preaching these things. Not abstract, systematic theology. And he goes on, makes a great statement about Jesus, which is worth our time, but for our purpose, we're going to move on. So it comes back to the rich. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the certainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves a treasure and a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So my question is, how would your elders deal with rich people in your congregation? First of all, are they willing to label anyone rich? I found over the years that our elders were hesitant. Money is a is a funky thing in the church today. It's, it's like a taboo subject where uh, we, we've taken Jesus's words, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing kind of thing and we've applied that to, we're not really allowed to consider how much money someone has and put people in the category of rich. Would your elders point out certain people and say they are rich? We had a couple of what I would say were rich elders, but they didn't see themselves that way. Problem is you can always find somebody richer, right? (laughs) So I'm not uh, Elon Musk, Uh, Bill Gates, I'm not any of those billionaires, so no matter how much money I have, I'm not rich. That's, that's kind of how we look at it. Are elders willing to identify those people and say they are rich? And then secondly, to talk to them and say, hey, make sure you don't put your hope in your wealth. You've been given much, my friend, Great. Enjoy it. He says this. Look, he says it. God supplies us with all things to enjoy. You're not guilty of sin because you're wealthy. You don't love money simply because you're wealthy. But they need to be, if you are wealthy, you need to be told. Don't put your hope in your wealth. Don't love money that could shipwreck your soul and be generous. He goes on to say, tell them to be generous. Store up treasure in heaven. Give that money to those who need it. Don't just hoard it for your own benefit. There's nothing wrong with enjoying it. If God has prospered you and blessed you, enjoy it. But you have an obligation that the unrich people, is that a word? Don't have to be generous. Uh, At least you have a higher obligation to it, put it that way Again, my question is Are elders willing to address these things? What we tend to default to in our traditional model is you preach a sermon on it. We're going to preach through 1 Timothy. And since we're expositional preachers and go verse by verse, we can't avoid the hard things. All right. So eventually we're going to get to chapter six and we're going to preach on on this. But as I said at the beginning, what I have learned, what I found is. As much as I enjoy sermons, preaching them, and I've learned a lot of academic things in sermons, real change comes from more personal teaching. Paul doesn't tell Timothy, hey, make sure you preach a sermon or tell the pastor to preach a sermon on these things. He says, you teach them. I think that's what's missing in the service-oriented, the traditional model where you go to a service and you, you you pay your money and you you get your you know lecture and then you go home and live your life. We elders need to be teaching these things one-on-one or in a smaller group setting, that kind of thing, and uh, be willing to do so. I just don't know if we will. For a pastor, for a paid pastor, it's a pickle. As I put together that, uh, that title, I don't know if I'll keep that title for the for the video, but I couldn't help but think I'm putting together a tongue twister here. The pickle of paid pastors, the priority of compensation. Ah, Anyway, when you're a paid pastor, you need the income of those people who are listening. And if you speak strong words to people who are rich, there's a conflict there. It's difficult. and I'm not saying every pastor succumbs to that pressure. I don't think I did. I don't think I avoided saying the hard thing in the sermons based on what people might leave. My personality is a little different. Uh, I sort of you know want to rise to the occasion and, and if the fight is picked or needs to be picked, let's pick it and let the chips fall where they may. But there are other decisions, much less important decisions that sometimes that thought would creep in okay if we decide to do this then how many people are going to lose if we if we take that approach and at the end of the day it's my livelihood i've got a family to feed is that a battle worth fighting all those kind of things and again the traditional model of the pastor needs to address that the elders typically don't get involved in these kind of things Rather than what we see here is the elders are the ones who are to shepherd the people. And elders need to get with rich folks and say, hey, God has blessed you. Great. Enjoy it. But be generous and don't trust in your riches. And again, the question is, does that happen? Would that happen? Would your elders do that? I see a couple questions here comments. Let me look. Alan says, is rich a subjective term? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's part of the challenge, isn't it? Uh, what would rich be in Paul's time? Yeah, and in, in one sense, all of us are far more wealthy than most anybody in Paul's day, it seems to me. Uh, so it's definitely a subjective term. So we do need to be careful. And like everything, there's another side of the horse that we don't want to fall off on it. Just because someone has more money than you does not mean they are lovers of money and that kind of thing. So absolutely, we need to be careful with this. Um, I don't, I don't know what the rich would exactly be in Paul's time and we're all richer than them. So we do have to be, el- elders would have to be humble and careful about this, but at least in my experience, I haven't seen elders fall off that side of the horse. It's mostly been unwilling to put anybody in a category of rich and speak to them and, and, uh, encourage them to be generous, that kind of thing. It's like, we don't, we don't want to go to someone and say, obviously, you're wealthy. You need to be generous with that. Uh, Dale says, my great uncle used to unironically say rich meant anyone who had more money than he did. Yep, exactly. <laughs> that's what I just said, right? Uh, I don't think my elders would publicly identify someone as being rich or poor, but certainly in private. Well, that's good. That's good. Um, and that's fine. I don't know that this has to be public, although... Uh, we do sometimes make too big a deal of that secrecy. Yes, Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing and don't trumpet your giving. But Paul said to the Corinthians, pull your money together and collect it. And when I show up, I will get it and send it with the proper people back to Jerusalem. I don't know how you do that without somebody knowing what you're giving. So I think sometimes we... We take one verse and make our entire view of things from that one verse and, and don't take the whole of scripture. And, and, and again, it's easy to rip those out of context. Uh, it, should it really be secret? How much money we have and make and, and all that? I don't know. I think sometimes we, we're we too, um, too worried about how much we how much people know about our financial situation or how much we give. I, I don't, we need to work through that biblically and not just camp on the being overly worried about it. Peter says, chances are that the elders are wealthy, respectable men themselves. Uh, trying to remember what I said that would have prompted that statement. Uh, some are. Uh, are you using respectable there in a in a good way? I'm not sure. Um, Alan says takes a lot of oil to keep the large machinery working church machinery. Yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's just a fact of the matter. and I, and I'm not I'm not seeking to question anybody's motives here. And I think we need to be very, very careful with that. It is easy to see someone who's got more money than you and accuse them of being, you know greedy and that kind of thing. And uh, poor people can be just as evil as rich people. One is not better than the other. James says, if you're rich, Rejoice in your poverty, that you really are worth nothing. Your 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 money doesn't make you worth anything, and rejoice in your poverty. You are poor in spirit, and your only hope is to fall in the mercy of Christ. If you're poor, rejoice in your wealth. You don't have material blessing, but you have the glories of Jesus and the the prosperity coming someday. All those things. So, uh, we're not to we're not to be envious of each other and judgmental of each other and all that my point here is f- the traditional model works against helping people grow in godliness it seems to me and I don't have time now to get into it Mike uh, uh, Mike um, left a a long comment on a Mike Keith left a long comment on a previous video talking about some friends some some people some acquaintances I guess that were that deconverted who walked away from the faith and left the church and I'm Probably not accurately summarizing it, but anyway, you can read it. And he was asking, you know, how does the how does the the model I'm espousing, which I think is the biblical model, how does this help that? One way, and it's not the solution to every problem, of course, but one way is in our situation. Anyway, we are living life together. Sunday morning is not the the thing. We're we're together all the time, and we know each other. And we hear what's going on, and, and, and it's very hard to hide some of these kinds of temptations and sins from each other in this setting. And we call each other out. And that that adds to the, 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 the sincerity of our of our faith. And people who are not serious about Christ are not going to stick around our group. They might go to a traditional church and check the box and feel good because they went to church and they'll pick a church that doesn't say hard things, but nobody's going to stick around and be part of what we are doing. If they're not serious about serving Jesus and loving one another. So I think that's at least one answer to the question, how does this model help? Well, it, it, it puts you around people who really care enough to say the hard things to address, uh, to address these things. Uh, Lon says you make yourself more vulnerable, accountable in your group. Yeah, exactly. And that's just, by necessity, you, you, you cannot hide uh, in a group like this. The question is, and it's been raised many times, is, is this scalable? Um, and I don't know. We're going to figure that out, Lord willing. But on the pursuit of godliness and t- biblical truth, uh, my experience is this is a much better scenario than the traditional model. All right. Time is up. Have a great Wednesday in the Lord. Rejoice. Be glad. Pursue godliness and we will see you tomorrow. Take care.